when he washed up on the beach of a remote island. However, his mood quickly changed when he was immediately surrounded by a group of indigenous warriors. God, please help me, I'm done for, he cried out in despair. The man was surprised but relieved when a booming voice from the heavens spoke back to him and said, No, you're not. Listen carefully and do exactly as I say. Grab a spear and push it through the heart of the warrior chief. Well, the man did what he was told, striking down the warrior chief and buying himself some time, and then turned to the heavens once again and asked, Now what? The booming voice replied, Now you're done for. Well, this must have been a bit like how uh, the situation that the Israelites found themselves in our story today. They have put themselves into a difficult situation by listening to some bad advice. And now the end seems near. And it's no laughing matter. Yes, in our Old Testament story today, we hear of a very, very dark day in the history of Israel. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself and the exile of God's chosen people. And as we've heard throughout our sermon series this year, his story, Israel's story, has yo-yoed up and down, up and down. From the high of Abraham's call to the low of slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then from the high of the Exodus, where they escape slavery and Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's evil rule, to the low of wandering around the desert for 40 years. From the high of taking the promised land to the low of appointing Saul as king, from the high of King David, the greatest king ever, to the separation of Israel into two kingdoms and all the wicked kings that followed him, yo-yoing up and down. And now, having been warned since the time of Moses, hundreds of years prior, and then by subsequent minor and major prophets over and over again, that turning their backs on God, worshipping false idols, and putting themselves at the center of this story would ultimately lead to their destruction, they choose not to heed this warning. And they do it over and over again. And we see the events that play out in our reading today. And Israel suffers God's judgment and the consequences of their actions. Now, while Scripture is clear, both Old and New Testament, that God is slow to anger and rich in love, eventually, for the sake of his story, his rescue plan for the world, he will allow his chosen people to hit rock bottom, to see their kingdom crumble, because ultimately, this story is not about them. They have a small part in it, but it's not really about them. So let's turn to our reading for today and see what God would reveal to us through his word. You've got it in the handout you were given on the way in, or you can follow along on the screens or pull out your Bible or your Bible app and follow along with me. But first of all, as we always do, I want to give you a little bit of context. Could you, you could read this story and just think, I have no idea what's going on here, right? Particularly if you don't spend much time in the Old Testament, as many of us don't. So I want to give you a little bit of context. As Kendall Harmon talked about last week, remember this, the kingdom has been split into two parts. Does anyone remember what the north part is called? Yeah, it's confusing, right? (laughs) The kingdom of Israel is split into two parts. They call the north part Israel. And the second part is called Judah. Judah. Thank you. And the northern kingdom of Israel has already faced God's judgment about 120 years prior to this. They were destroyed in 722. And now Judah, a century later, finds itself caught in a struggle between two global superpowers. These are people, think about the Cold War. Think about the USA and the USSR. These are the global superpowers of the time. We've got the Egyptians in the south, and then we've got the Babylonians coming down from the north. And they get caught right in the middle. 
okay? Well, in 598 BC, Babylon comes from the north under King Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> excuse me. He seizes of control from Israel, who are uh, under the power then of the Assyrian Empire, but the Assyrian Empire is crumbling and falling apart. Remember, that was the empire that Jonah went to. <clears throat> And then he puts a puppet Israelite king in place. His name is Zedekiah, forcing him to make a vow that he won't rebel against him. This guy is just going to basically collect tribute, send it to him, and keep peace, hopefully, for Nebuchadnezzar. But Egypt to the south keeps challenging Babylon. They keep coming up through Israel. And so Zedekiah, who is an evil man, an evil king, he sees an opportunity and he listens to the wrong voices. Although he's been told by God to side with the Babylonians, um, foolishly, he decides to betray Babylon and turn to Egypt in an attempt to get rid of Israel's oppressors. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who's, of course, furious with Zedekiah, and he's also concerned that he might lose these trading routes that he has the Mediterranean by coming through Israel. He decides he's going to come in, he's going to invade Judah and lay siege to Jerusalem and stop anyone coming or going. And that's where our story picks up today. So verses 1 through 3. What we see is it's been nine years since Zedekiah was installed as a puppet king for Nebuchadnezzar. But now Nebuchadnezzar is coming to replace him. We find out in a different book of the Bible, Jeremiah, he's one of the major prophets, that the Lord tells Zedekiah uh, that both him and his family and the city of Jerusalem, they will be spared if they will just surrender to the Babylonians at this stage. But Zedekiah instead listens to Hananiah, not Jeremiah. And Hananiah is a false prophet who tells him that they will break the yoke of Babylonian oppression. These Chaldeans, as they're also known, they will destroy them. They will defeat them. However, after 18 months of being besieged, there is no victory in sight for the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And by 586 BC, there's no food left in the city. Imagine if Dangalan was completely surrounded or just the area of East Cooper. There's no way in or out for food to come in or out and they've used up what they have. And so things have gotten pretty desperate, but they're actually about to get worse. Verses four through seven, we read in verse four, a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden and the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of the Arabah. So the Babylonians make a hole in the wall, okay? It's in the northern side of the city walls from what we can tell. And so Zedekiah and his troops, they decide it's time to get out. And they flee through an exit in the southeastern wall. And they head over towards Jericho before they're finally captured. And it's somewhat ironic that the location of the city where they're captured is actually the location of the city that is first taken by Joshua when he first comes in to take the promised land. This is where the last king of Judah is also captured. Well, although his life is spared, that Zedekiah, it's not much of a mercy. You probably caught that in the story. His sons are all killed right in front of him. And in fact, it's the very last thing that he ever gets to see with his eyes because then his eyes are gouged out and he's taken out into captivity and never again will he return to Israel. 
Well, then in verses 8 through 17, we have destruction and plundering of the city. Not uncommon in those times in a war. So as prophesied, God's judgment falls hard on the city of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, who's the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's bodyguard, is tasked with raising Jerusalem to the ground to make an example of this rebellious outpost. And so he tears down the walls. He tears down the homes within the walls. He tears down the king's palace. But worse First of all, he tears down the temple that Solomon had built. The house of the Lord, the very symbol of God's presence with the Jews. However, if you read Ezekiel, another major prophet, he reveals that actually God's presence had departed the temple a long time before it was destroyed. Many Jews believed God would never leave his temple, and therefore neither Jerusalem nor the temple within it could be destroyed. But you see, God isn't limited by a building. He doesn't just dwell in church buildings. He doesn't dwell just in a temple. And ultimately, this is actually good news for the people, uh, for the Jews who were exiled to Babylon. Look at verse 11. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. See, if God isn't limited to Mount Zion, it means that he can go with this faithful remnant and protect them, which, as we'll see in the story of Daniel next week, is exactly what he does. Well, in verses 18 through 21, we experience death and exile. There's one last slaughter, as you may have seen. In verses 18 through 21, we see the common practice victors had of making an example of national leaders and removing the leaders of resistance and any potential future rebels. So they take out the Jewish religious leaders, the military leaders, the political leaders, and the financial leaders. And they're all mercilessly rounded up and then executed in front of the king of Babylon. God's judgment is fulfilled and the promised land lies in ruins. And the writer ends with these devastating words. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. It's a terrible tragedy in the history of the Israelite people. It's akin to our civil war, perhaps, a nation-defining event that will never be forgotten. And yet the exile is a tragedy that is self-inflicted. For hundreds of years, as I said, the Israelites have turned their backs on God over and over again. And if anyone ever asks the question, is God fair? Surely this story tells us that he is. His judgment falls on even his chosen people. Eventually his patience runs out. And he knows the only way his story advances is by allowing his people to suffer the consequences of their actions. Much like the parents who realize that their constant rescuing of their child is counterproductive and is in fact enabling them. And so he says, and so they say no more, well, God lets the kingdoms of Israel and Judah crumble and even lets his temple be destroyed so that one day they'll listen to him again. And one day his rule and reign on the earth will be established forever. You see, what you may not know is that if you look back just one chapter to 2 Kings 24, the king prior to Zedekiah is a man called Jehoiakim. 
And Jehoiakim's the son of a good king called Josiah. And Josiah is the descendant of King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. And Jehoiakim is also captured by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into exile and thrown into prison. But if we look forward a few verses to the end of chapter 25, 27 through 29, unlike Zedekiah's ignominious end, we see that Jehoiakim finds favor in the eyes of a future king of Babylon. Therefore, he's released from prison and he and his family survive. And he next appears in scripture in the New Testament. The New Testament. When his name pops up in the genealogy of someone called Jesus. You see, Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, is the father of Shealtiel. And as we read in the genealogy, this is the part we normally skip over in the Christmas stories, like, we don't want that part, just get me to the baby Jesus in the manger, right? No, listen to this. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew chapter 1. Yes, Zedekiah rebels, and his sons are all killed. No lineage there, right? But God, in his wisdom, he allows Jehoiakim and his family to be saved, and they are able to return to Jerusalem. But I'm not going to tell you any more, but that'll be a spoiler. We'll find out more about that in two weeks' time. God's plans will not be thwarted there. His story will continue. His rescue plan for the whole world is still in motion. And one day, he will send his son to live and die for all mankind. The true king will come and he will die upon a bloody cross and to pay the sin for all of mankind. He will die for you and he will die for me. And he will die for all those that we know who do not know him yet. And as we heard in our gospel reading today that Ed read for us, the temple of his body can also be destroyed, but it will be raised up in three days as he rises from the dead and he conquers sin and death. Now, if there's one thing the story of the Israelites reveals to us, it's that we cannot rescue ourselves, friends. We cannot. No matter how hard we try and how long we try, we cannot match up to the standard required of us by God. But God in his grace provides a way for us to be saved from our depravity. Yes, even even though he knows our darkest sins, the things that we, we don't really want anyone else to know, not even our spouse, not even our best friends, he still offers us his forgiveness and says, come and be free and live for me. Friends, like the Israelites, you may be in a mess right now. You may be suffering the consequences of your sinful actions, but know that God still extends his hand of grace towards you. You know, as an 18-year-old, I did what many young people do. I set off to find myself, right? 
took a trip halfway around the world to Malaysia to see the place where I was born. You see, my parents were missionaries in the jungles of Borneo, and I spent the first three years of my life there. And so during my senior year of high school, I persuaded my parents to let me travel there by myself and to see the country of my origin. And with their help, I saved up enough money to book flights, and they took care of making sure there was a place for me to stay with people that they knew. And off I went on this voyage of discovery. The problem was that as soon as I touched down at my first destination, Singapore, I immediately lost my plane tickets and my passport. So there I was on my own, 8,000 miles from home, pre-cell phones and email, and I was stuck. It seemed like everything was going wrong. But not in God's eyes. No, he had me right where he wanted me. Finally, all I had was him. You know, my teen years have been spent drifting away from him, turning my back on him over and over again. And so he used my journey to discover myself to help me discover him. Not my story, but his story. And it's a much longer account than I have time to tell now, but if you want to grab coffee sometime, I'll share it all with you. But he got me out of that situation, and my journey through Southeast Asia continued. And for the next three weeks or so, I drew so close to him, and I listened to him, and I heard him clearly tell me what I needed to do when I got back home, what I needed to change, what I needed to let go of, and how I needed to follow him completely. Otherwise, I was heading for trouble. And so when I got home, of course, I negotiated. <laughs> well, God, I'm glad you got me through that difficult time. And I'm thankful, but I, I think I know what's best now. Well, for the next six months, my freshman year at college, I fell back into the same old destructive habits. And life revolved around me, me, and me. Until one particularly dark January day when everything in my world came crashing down and I hit rock bottom. Now, I don't know if you've ever hit rock bottom, but it is a dark place, particularly when you know that you were warned. But even though it was dark, it is the most important event in my life that has led me back or led me to the Lord and to the life he was calling me to lead. And I would not be here today if it were not for that time in my life. Friends, I hate to say it, but some of you may need to hit rock bottom too. Some of you may need to hit rock bottom too to experience your own personal exile before God can truly set you free. You see, there are idols in your life that God needs to remove before you will truly love him and live for him, before you can experience true freedom and serve him. You know what they are, but you are clinging on for dear life, scared of what might happen if you let go, if they are taken away from you. But know that God has your best interests in mind. He knows what's best for you. And like a skillful surgeon cutting out the cancerous parts of your body, he will not stop until every diseased piece is gone. So repent and return to the Lord and love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is your part in his story. And it is one that is filled with hope and joy, even in the darkest night.